0: Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Hello everybody. Whereas well, you say in South Africa, how's it? Yeah, we don't say that in America at all. I keep asking, how's what? I don't understand what you're saying. Now I'm starting to pick it up. It's great to be here. Um, I come from Portland, Oregon, which is, think, west coast of America, and then go north until the weather is miserable. That's where I... And the coffee is really good. That's where I live. That fine line between misery and incredible food and coffee. That's right <laughs> where I call home. So when I hear Cape Town or, or Capetonian or whatever you call yourselves, Capetonian, right? When I hear you complain about your winter, I just want to rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus. That... <laughs> You don't know anything about winter. You have no idea what you're talking about. So we're coming off that northern hemisphere. We're coming off the end of our winter. And I have not been outside in six months. And now I'm in Cape Town and loving my life. So even if I just bomb today and it's terrible and you hate me, hey, I'm, I'm in Cape Town. I'm good. So I'm, I'm happy to be with you. Hey, um, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, an app on your phone. Or if you don't want to do anything, that's fine. Just sit there and feel guilty. And um, that's great by me as well, guilt and shame, uh, yeah, that's just totally of Jesus, you know, he's all about that sarcasm. Do you have sarcasm in Cape Town? Okay, fantastic, fantastic, We'll, we'll get along just fine then. Hey, we don't have a ton of time together, but as I was praying and kind of working toward this morning, I just thought that I would pass on to you one of the main things that I'm learning right now in my apprenticeship to Jesus. Sometimes it's best just to kind of open up out of your own life. This is where I'm at, and hopefully it will strike some kind of a chord with you. And if not, hey, you live in Cape Town, it's all good, all right? Let's start off right here with Jesus of Nazareth, John chapter 1. Fascinating, because um, Mark just said something about this story. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, that word disciples there is mathetes in the Greek, the original language. Can you say mathetes? Well done. You're all Greek scholars now. And that's the word that we usually translate disciple. It can also be translated follower once in a while in the New Testament. In my humble opinion, I think the best word we have in the English language to capture the idea behind mathetes is the word apprentice. Because to be a mathetase or a disciple or a follower of a rabbi, whether it was John the Baptist or Jesus or Hillel or Shammai or any number of rabbis in that time and day, was to be an apprentice. It was to organize your whole life around two or three goals, to be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, and to do what he did. And so John the Baptizer, here has two mathetes, two disciples. Now, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, and there's that line, the Lamb of God. Now, when the two disciples or two apprentices heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Imagine John is thinking, wait, that's not what I meant. That's not what, don't abandon me. That's not what I meant at all. But they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following. That's what apprentices do. They follow. And he said, what is it that you want? They said, Rabbi, which is a Hebrew word meaning teacher, where are you staying? And then look at this line. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Notice that Jesus' invitation here to these young kind of mathetes, these young disciples, these young apprentices, or would-be apprentices, was just, hey, come and hang out with me. What are you doing this afternoon? Come over to my house. I have an Airbnb in the southern suburbs with a pool. You wanna hang out this afternoon? I'm actually not inviting all of you. That was a hypothetical scenario. I do, I do have an Airbnb in the southern suburbs with the pool. I'm living like rich people and it's fantastic, but you're not invited, all right? I'm really introverted and I want a couple hours to myself, but um, the pool is invited. Me and the pool are invited, it's fantastic. But that was, if I was Jesus, I would invite you all over for lunch this afternoon. That was the invitation of Jesus. Hey, come and be with me. Over and over and over, you see some kind of a story like this. Hey, come follow me. Hey, come be with me. Hey, come over to my house. Hey, what's for dinner? Oh, that sounds great. Come eat with me. Just come be with me. That is the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to be with Jesus. Let me say that again, the first and primary goal of your apprenticeship, or if you prefer the word discipleship to Jesus, or if you prefer the language of following Jesus, the first, the primary goal is to be with Jesus. Now, of course, you're all smart thinking people, um, except for Mark, and so, that's kidding, I don't even mean that, the, you South Africans are so mean to each other. I'm from Portland where we're, we're nice to our friends, and mean to our enemies, and here it's, it's opposite, I don't... So like, and I've just been corrupted one week in your country and I'm just mocking the pastor. Yeah, where's the, you're actually a, a lovely man, as you would say over here. Well done. Um, the question is, you're smart thinking people. What's the question? The question is, how does this work now exactly? Because Jesus is not here. I mean, not in the flesh. And it's not like a abstract statement at the end of the gospel. We read that Jesus goes away to the right hand of the father So how exactly do we be with Jesus? Follow Jesus wasn't a metaphor in the first century. It was literal, right? It meant like, follow me, as in, walk behind me. We go here, we go here. So how exactly do we be with Jesus now? We'll turn over to John chapter 14, just a few pages to the right in your Bible. John chapter 14. Toward the end of Jesus' life, as we move through his autobiography that we call the Gospel of John... Jesus starts to talk more and more about kind of what is on the horizon. His death, his burial, resurrection. About the the hard truth that he will go away. And and he's starting to warn his apprentices. Man, this this is coming. This is around the bend. And then have a look at this in John chapter 14, verse 16. Right in the middle. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now, this is a bit slippery to translate into English that phrase "another advocate" because in Greek, in English, there's one word that we trans- for another, but in Greek, there's two words, and the word used here means "another of the same kind." So this can be translated: "I will give you another one of me, or another one in my place to help you." And here's our language: "Be with you forever, not just for a few years, but forever." And then who is it right here? The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be even more than that in you. So not just with you, but in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And let's get down to verse 25. Jesus goes on. All this I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name or in place of me, he will teach you all things, will remind you of everything I've said to you, so don't worry about it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So, according to Jesus of Nazareth, who knows a thing or two, the way that you and I be with Jesus is through the Holy Spirit through relationship to the Holy Spirit, the another one of me that goes by the name the Holy Spirit. This means that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is the baseline for following Jesus. So if you're new to Jesus, if you were just baptized in the last few weeks or months or years, and you're thinking, man, it's a bit overwhelming, where do I start? It's complex, and it's way different than what I'm used to and what I grew up around and the city that I call home, where in the world do I start? This is it, right here. This is kind of, if there's a starting line, in my opinion, this is it. You be with Jesus. Jesus Jesus goes on to lay out a metaphor for how to live into this brand new reality of life with God. Just have a look at chapter 15, one paragraph down, verse 1. Here it is. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So in the metaphor, Jesus is the vine, and the Father, God, is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me, that's you or me, that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit... He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And then this next word in Greek is the word meno, and it can be translated remain, or if you have an older translation, it reads abide. My Bible says remain. I prefer the word abide. It means to dwell or to make your home in or to set up shop in me, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, just in case you missed that part. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Remember that for later. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not even a little bit. We get nothing from Jesus. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my mathetes, my disciples, my apprentices. Now, have a look at this. Jesus' metaphor is that of a branch abiding in the vine. In this one teaching, he uses that word benno, abide or remain, ten times. In that one little teaching, Jesus is driving the point home over and over again. Get into the presence of God and stay there. Just anchor in, just sink the pillars of your life deep into the earth of God's presence and don't move a muscle. Now, this doesn't mean you need to quit your job and join a monastery, Um, Jesus didn't, neither did the writer John here, but this does mean that you and I need to learn to always be two places at once, in Cape Town traffic, which is pretty bad by the way, and in the presence of God, out kite surfing, I hear that's a thing around here, and clearly in the presence of God, at the morning gym and in the presence of God, catching up on email and in the presence of God, at your job you don't like at all and in the presence of God cleaning up vomit after morning breakfast when your wife is gone and you're trying to pastor a church and parent children and pick up Mr. Dude from America and in the presence of God. (laughs) Always be two places at once all day long. There's all sorts of language used to capture this kind of a relational dynamic and experience with God. Jesus here calls it abiding. Paul later on in the New Testament calls it prayer without ceasing. And I don't think he means by that a 24-7 prayer vigil. Like at some point you would just run out of sleep and food and oxygen and you would die. I think he just means a whole lifestyle built around abiding. Where where prayer isn't something you go and do. It's it's the air you breathe. It's your relationship with God. You're always with God. Everywhere you go, a little bit here, a little bit there. You're just always in two places at once. Ongoing, continuous, 24-7 life with God. Our Catholic brothers and sisters call it contemplation, or if you read a lot of the Catholic literature, they call it, they talk about beginning prayer, and then they talk about advanced prayer. I like that. That's kind of cool. It advanced. Beginning prayer is like, Jesus, I need help with this, that, or the other. Advanced prayer is just life with God. The medieval mystic Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. That's my favorite language, after abiding. Do you know about Brother Lawrence? Is he a thing in South Africa at all? If not, don't feel bad at all. He was a 15th century Parisian monk, so way before our time on another continent. And um, he wasn't a priest or a scribe. He was a dishwasher in the back of this monastery in Paris. And he devoted his entire life to what he called the practice of the presence of God. So that was his life goal. You asked Brother Lawrence... You know, what's your dream for your future? He said, oh, I'm a dishwasher. My life goal is the practice of the presence of God. Now, this goes on for years, and he's just transformed by abiding, by life with God. And uh, pretty soon, word gets out, and people start to come from all over Paris to ask questions, and just watch this monk in the back room wash dishes and delight in God at the same time. Then people start to write letters from all over Europe and the known world. And after his death, those letters were put together into... They call it a book, but it's really more of just a little pamphlet. Here's one quote that I absolutely love from one of the letters. He writes this. The time of business... So think about your chaotic moment. What if you're a full-time parent or a businessman or you run a... Whatever you're... The time of just chaos and activity and noise. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen... While several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. He's a 15th century Catholic. The blessed sacrament, that's, that's code for the bread and the cup. That's the most sacred moment in his worldview, And he's saying, yeah, that is a sacred moment. And so is cleaning up after dinner. It's morning prayer. 4 a.m. in a monastery, quiet, not a noise, just me. That's a sacred moment. And so is my morning commute in traffic down that freeway. It's all life with God. Man, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of relational dynamic with Jesus that I, for one, ache for. My yeah. guess is that I'm not alone. What, what if you and I were to follow after Brother Lawrence? What if we were to devote our life to the practice of the presence of God? But notice that he calls it the practice of the presence of God. I absolutely love that language because this way of living, it won't just happen. In particular, in the digital age, if you have a smartphone or you have access to Wi-Fi, actually, your Wi-Fi here is terrible all over your country. I basically love your country. There's just a couple. There's a short list of things I hate about it. And Wi-Fi is not at the top, but it's, it's getting there. It's getting there, you know? Um, I just insulted your country. I'm sorry. I really do love your country. I really do love it. Fantastic. I just insulted your pastor and your country in one sermon. I'm not going to get invited back ever. I'm so sorry. But this way of living in the digital age, in a city with a busy life, it won't just happen. It will take practice. Here's my all-time favorite quote from a Christian philosopher who died a few years ago by the name of Dallas Willard. His writings have really shaped the way that I follow Jesus of Nazareth, and I love this. I actually printed this out on the inside of my closet door just to read before I go about my day. He writes this, and it's a bit thick and a bit dense, so just kind of pay attention and we'll get through it. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds this is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God, there's Brother Lawrence's language, is to direct and then redirect our minds, because we get distracted, constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdens and habits of dwelling on things less than God. That's a A nice philosopher way of saying, you're going to get distracted by, I got to run this errand, I got to run that errand. Oh, wow, look at that. Oh, kite surfing. Oh, this. Oh, wow. Like, you're going to get distracted. But hey, these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. How beautiful is that? And his point is that, listen, abiding in the vine or the practice of the presence, it takes practice, a life built around practice, but it's worth it. A little bit here a little bit there you get better you get better and all of a sudden your mind your imagination and out of that your heart it starts to default not to the sports game or news or social media or the to-do list or work or the errand you have to it starts more and more to default to god you're here right now and i'm here too and it doesn't happen in a day It doesn't happen in a week you're not going to hear my sermon and be like oh great from now on i practice the presence of god So over months, over years, you start to cultivate a mind, an imagination, a heart, a body posture that is organized around the practice of the presence of God. But over time, if you can master this art, and it really is an art form, in particular in the modern world, But if you can master this art form of abiding, it pays huge dividends. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. We'll end here this morning. Galatians chapter 5. So if you're new to the Bible, you have in the New Testament, you have four gospels or first century biographies of Jesus of Nazareth. And then you have a whole bunch of, for the most part, letters that were written by kind of apostolic teachers ...who are working out all of the implications of Jesus' life... ...and all of his teaching and all of his death and burial and resurrection. And and Paul is kind of the most prolific of all the writers in the New Testament. I just want to show you what the writer Paul does in Galatians chapter 5. This is a letter he's writing to a whole region called Galatia in modern day Turkey. And I just want to show you what he does with Jesus' teaching from John 15. So you'll notice as we read through, there's allusion after allusion after allusion to John 15, abide in the vine, the teaching that we just read. And I want to show you how Paul starts to work out the implications, what all of this means, if you can figure out this art form, what it all means for you and for me. Let's start off in chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit. I think that's Paul's kind of way of saying, abide in the vine. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh is that kind of warped and corrupted part of you, that kind of primal animal part of you that wants things you know you're not supposed to want and doesn't want things you know you are supposed to want. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want because you're this mixed bag of good desires and bad desires. Desires from your flesh, ...and desires from the Spirit. You're this mixed bag. But if you are led by the Spirit... ...or once again I would translate that if you abide in the vine... ...you are not under the law. Now the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, that's right at the top of the list. That kind of flesh impulse toward sex... Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, pay attention to this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Read this out loud if you have an NIV or if you have it in your memory. Peace, forbearance, kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Messiah Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now how many of you have read this passage before in the room? How many of you? Yeah, I'm guessing the vast majority of you, not all of you, don't feel bad if you've not. This is a very well-known passage, and for good reason. It is a stunning picture of transformation, of what happens when you apprentice under Jesus and you are transformed, um, not just into your behavior, you don't just behave the right Way, But you become the right kind of person and you take on the inner disposition of jesus marked by love and joy and peace and on down that last But here's the deal It's really well known at least where I come from and maybe it's not a problem in south africa But where I come from and in my experience a lot of people twist and distort and mutate this passage into a list of commands to be more virtuous so I read this passage growing up, I grew up um, in the church, and I, I, I read it basically, and I, I would think to myself, oh, I need to be more loving. Oh, joy, yes, I need to work on joy this week. Oh, peace, I'm so stressed out and anxious right now. Okay, Jesus, help me to be more peaceful. Oh, patience, oh, I'm terrible at that. Oh my gosh, and I have three children now. Oh, babe, like I, I, okay, I need to be more patient this week. Now, is that a list of commands to be more virtuous? Mm-mm. And even if it was, by the way, it doesn't work, because every single word on that list is not a behavior or an action. It's a descriptor of the inner disposition. And it's not something you can do by willpower. For example, love, um, you, you can't, through willpower alone, you can't just make a decision right now to be loving towards somebody. Now, well, let me rephrase that. You can act loving towards somebody. You can grit your teeth and stand and chat to somebody that you can't stand and be really nice. My wife and I call it fake nice. You know people like that? That's, I don't know if it's a Port, maybe a Portland thing more than a South African thing. Who smile at you and, and inside you just tell them, like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I hate. You. But they don't say it at all. They smile, but there's something there. If you're perceptive, you're like, oh, that's fake nice. She's not actually nice. That's fake nice. Um, so we can act more loving toward people, at least for a little while, you know, at least for five, ten minutes or a little couple minutes at church through willpower alone. But we can't actually be more loving, we can't actually generate a new heart posture toward that person right there in that moment through willpower. Same with joy. We can, we can make a decision to, put a, to have a good attitude, to put on a good face, to say, I'm grateful this, I'm grateful for that, even to rejoice. And there is a command later in the writings of Paul to rejoice. It's not a bad thing. But you can't actually be more joyful. Just like, oh, I'm really sad today. Hmm, be more joyful. Boom. Okay, great. I'm doing great now. It isn't like you're an emotional creature, and you don't you have influence over what you feel, but you don't have control over what you feel, right? So on down the list. So Paul's not, and, and the second problem with that is Paul is not. There's no command there. Paul does not command you to be more loving. He does not command you to be more joyful. He does not command you to be more peaceful. At least not here. He's not commanding you to be more patient. There is one command in the entire passage, and it's repeated at least twice, or depending on how you exegete the Greek, maybe even three times. It's the beginning, and it's at the end. At the beginning of verse 16, he writes, walk in the Spirit. That's a command. And at the end, in verse 25, he writes, since we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Paul is a genius, by the way. It's almost like he had help. You see what he's saying? You see what he's up to here? He's saying that, yes, we can't be more loving or more joyful or more peaceful or more patient, but we can, through the spiritual disciplines, we'll chat about that in a minute, open ourselves up to the person and presence and power of the Holy Spirit and let him grow the fruit of the Spirit up from the inside of our life out. Paul's metaphor is, of course, of a fruit tree. Where is he getting that? Who is he stealing that from? Jesus of... It's okay to do that, right? Jesus of... At least when you're Paul. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, John 15, fruit of the Spirit, abide in the vine, you will bear much... What? Fruit. He's getting all of that from Jesus. How does a vine... I was in Stellenbosch yesterday, went out to a wine farm, was absolutely beautiful. How... So you get the picture of a vineyard. How, how does a... A vine, how does a branch bear fruit? Through, through trying really hard? No, just through abiding. Have you ever seen like a really stressed out vineyard? It's just like, oh, come on. We're in a drought. We need to make a better grape this year. Like so much is riding. The pinotage needs to break through at a global level. Come on, come on. Nobody knows about us outside of South Africa. We need to break through. No, like it's just there. It's just abiding. And all of the life, all of the nutrient, the water, all of it is coming from the vine. Same is true for a peach tree or an orange tree or any kind of fruit. Not through trying. You don't bear fruit through trying really hard. You bear fruit through abiding. In the same way, how does an apprentice of Jesus bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience? Through trying really hard. Be more loving, be more loving, be more loving. No, I'm not all against trying, but it just doesn't get you nearly far enough. Willpower is great. I'm all for willpower, but it'll get you maybe 25% of the way. So how do we bear fruit? Through abiding. Through abiding. All day long. Life, we practice the presence of God. Out of that place, as we open up to God, we are transformed. Now, the question is, and this is where we'll kind of land the plane. How do we do this? In the chaos of our day and age in a city, if you have a family or a smartphone or kind of not great Wi-Fi access or whatever, how, how do we actually do this? It won't just happen. It will take a high degree of intentionality. So how? Well, it's really simple. We already said it through practice. This is where the spiritual disciplines, um, as they are usually called, or what I prefer to call the practices of Jesus, come in. The spiritual disciplines or the practices are time-tested ancient practices that go all the way back to Jesus himself, to the Jesus that we read about in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that organize and orient your whole life around abiding, or around what, Lawrence called the practice of the presence of God there's no official list of the spiritual disciplines because basically anything that you read about in the life of Jesus is a spiritual discipline So, you know Jesus going up on a mountaintop to pray. That's a spiritual discipline Jesus going on a walk by the side of the lake anything based on the life of Jesus But usually in the top ten are always silence and solitude Most of the great teachers of the way would put that right at the top even if you're a high extrovert prayer, of course fasting Which is something we've lost, at least in America, over the last century, but for thousands of years was one of the core practices of discipleship. Reading scripture, of course, that. Sabbath, and I would put church, what you're doing right now. This is a spiritual discipline. This moment right here, church together. It's one that we do all together as a community. Giving, generosity, justice, celebration, confession, gratitude. And the spiritual disciplines are key, essential. Non-negotiable if you want to be with Jesus. And for over a millennia and a half, the spiritual disciplines were the starting point to apprenticeship to Jesus. So if you were to become a follower of Jesus, you know, in 12 AD or whatever, you would sit down with your pastor or your priest or your church, and the first thing you would learn is how to pray and how to, and how to fast. And the Bible wasn't available for you to take home or there was no app on your phone, but you would start to memorize scripture and you would start to live in community. The first thing wasn't some like, theory-based, post-enlightenment kind of basic doctrine class. And I'm all for that. But the first thing was, this is how you actually experience life with God. This is how you actually organize and orient your whole life around the experience of the God that you were just baptized into relationship with. But the reality is that, at least in my context, and maybe it's much better here, but the spiritual disciplines are pretty much gone. In 40 and under, they're basically non-existent. And all sorts of people who come to church, who love God, who want relationship with God, just feel distant and disconnected. A lot of people that have been in church for 10, 20, 30 years are frustrated, if not full-on disillusioned and discouraged, because they don't feel like they've been transformed. They believe the right stuff. They become a better person, but they read this list, and they're like, that list is not true of me, and I've been at this for 20 years. That means something's not right. That means I'm missing something. If you've been following Jesus longer than I've been alive and your life is not marked by life, by love and joy and peace, no guilt, no shame. It just means that something in the way that you're following Jesus is off because that's the end goal. And yes, it's a lifelong process and we all have a very different starting point. There's a number of people that have just lost this. This is something I really believe in the Western church in particular, out of the Reformation. We've just, we've lost sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is, is just that. It is a way of life not just a set of ideas what we call theology and it's not just a list of do's and don'ts or what we call ethics and i'm all for theology and ethics but usually we talk a ton about theology and a ton about ethics and we say little or nothing about lifestyle but lifestyle is where the money is for jesus it all goes together and so this This is the beginning point of our apprenticeship. This is how we organize our life. And we just say, the thing about the spiritual disciplines is all the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. I think that's why they get a bad rap. People get confused and think of the spiritual disciplines as this legalistic religious tradition. Like, oh, we've moved on. We're free. We have grace. We're not about rules and regulations. And I just think, oh, you're missing the whole heart behind them. The point of this discipline is not to earn God's love. or That's ridiculous. You are loved. You're a father. I'm sorry, you're a son, you're a daughter. You are loved by the Father. What's your child's name? Olivia Grace. Grace. Do you love her? What has she done to earn your love? Poop. (laughs) Created a lot of violence and pain in your wife's body. Yeah, cost you money, I'm guessing. Cost you sleep. Yeah, she's doing a great job at earning your love, isn't she? No. (laughs) No. But she's loved. In the same way, man, this isn't about earning God's love at all. This is about our partnership with God to become our real true self and above all to experience relationship with God. Just to be with Him. I have a date every single Thursday night with my wife. It's not a legalistic rule or regulation. It's just a way for me to anchor myself in relationship with my wife. Because I know that in the chaos of the world, if I don't have a moment just to connect face-to-face, no phone, no three children, God bless them, Just me and Tammy together. If I don't have that moment on a regular basis, man, that relationship will disintegrate and fall apart. Your relationship with Jesus is no different. You need a daily, a weekly, a regular, habitual moment of life with God. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. It's just, God, I'm here. I wasn't here before. I was in traffic or on email or mad at my wife. But now I'm here. You've been here all along. And now we're together. You and me. Now, if you're thinking, man, that's great, but I just don't have the time. I'm a full-time mom or dad, and I work this demanding job, and I live in the... I just don't have time for it. Well, here's the hard truth. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Let me say that again. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Let me tell you a quick story. Mark, how much time do I have? I, I don't see a clock anywhere. Another 15. Ooh, 15 minutes. I was thinking five or 10. Boom, I just got 15. <laughs> um, I live uh, in the urban core of Portland, Oregon, and so we live in this old house right right up against downtown. And two houses down, there's a, a house that is uh, very Portland. It's full of a bunch of single people, and then maybe about a half a dozen single people that live there. And they're all runners. I think they either work, Nike is based in Portland. Um, The shoe company, and they either work for Nike Or I think they might be sponsored by Nike And it's really interesting I have this little morning spot in my house That I go to drink my coffee and pray And do the disciplines and be with Jesus And I look out and I have a straight shot To their front door And usually really early in the morning 6 or 6.30 in the morning I see the six of them kind of walk out The front door and go on a run And you know, they're they're less human beings And they're more a herd of antelope At that point, you know (laughs) I'm not sure you could call it running. It's more like prancing, you know, down the street. They walk out. They have about 2% body fat. They're in spandex, and they just look so good. I mean, it's not even fun. They just look amazing. And they run, and they just, bam, it's lightning right down the street, you know, whatever it is, a six-minute mile or what, I don't know what that would be in kilometers, really fast. They're down. They're gone for an hour. They're back. They're all sweaty. They're right out of a Nike commercial, and they go inside, you know, after they stretch outside, and they're. Spandex and just look so good, you know. And I'll I'll, I'll be up there in my office and with my coffee and my Bible, and I'll just think, man. So I run. I run four days a week, but I'm not a runner. You know the difference between I run on a regular basis and a runner. It's a very different thing. So I run four days a week. I'm not a runner. Um, And they are runners. And so on a regular basis, I will look down at them and I'll think, oh man, I want that. I want to look good in spandex. I want two percent body fat. I want to run a six-minute mile. I want to have that kind of energy and immune system and incredible health. I want to be, in America, we would say somebody's a specimen if they look that good. I don't know if you say that here. I want to be a, nobody's ever said that about me, ever, <laughs> ever. I want to be a specimen, you know? Edwin down here with those muscles, single, minus the mustache, he's a specimen, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, oh, Yeah, now I've insulted two of your pastors. That's fantastic. I'm just on a roll here. But here's the thing. So I'll look at these runners and I'll think, I want that life. But then I'll start to think about the lifestyle. And then I'll think, do I really want to go out at six in the morning in winter, which we actually have a winter, in spandex and run a six minute mile? Do I really want to go to bed like at nine p.m., not after a glass of red wine and an evening meal, after like celery and water? Do I, do I really want to train for a race, not once a year, but like all the time? Do I really want to push myself until I'm heaving on the side of the road and pouring sweat? I think, nah, I, my coffee is really good this morning, you know? <laughs> I want the life, but I'm not ready to sacrifice for the lifestyle. Now, I think you see where I'm going with this. That's how I think a lot of us feel about our apprenticeship to Jesus. We want the life of Jesus, but we're just not quite up for the sacrifice, the demand of the lifestyle of Jesus. But the reality is that your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. And by lifestyle, I mean your rituals and your routines and your rhythms, the way you spend your time and money, the way you organize your day, your week, your month, your life. In business parlance, there's a a business line, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. What that means is that if you feel like your life is off kilter and you're stressed out or you feel distant and disconnected from God or you feel angry all the time, then your system... Your lifestyle, your morning routine, your day routine, your week, your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, your relationship to technology, your relationship to people, God, it's perfectly designed to give you the result that you are getting. And insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for different results. So we have to change. We have to change the system. We have to change our lifestyle if we want to get different results. But for a lot of us, this means sacrifice. This means we've got to get up a little bit earlier and go for it. And maybe not on a run, but maybe it means we start to read our Bible on a daily basis. Maybe it means we start to pray. Maybe It means we start to just take a little time for silence and solitude. where You just sit there with yourself and with God and you let yourself feel. And you let your mind settle down and you meet God. And what you feel and what you think—good, bad, ugly—you don't filter it out. And you just meet God in that space and in that moment. And you let God start to speak over you and deposit into your mind and your imagination. You just ask a little whisper prayer: God, what is it that you have for me today? And you open up your mind, your imagination, your heart. What is it that you have for me today? Anything you want to confirm? Anything you want to correct? Anything you want to call out in my life? Here I am. I'm open. I'm listening. And you just start to settle down. This There's all sorts of implications for following Jesus. Here's a top one. And maybe it's not such a big deal here. Maybe it's a laid-back, you know, suburban surfer thing. But where I'm at, at least, anxiety is a huge problem. Massive problem across America, across my generation. Just massive, like, epidemic level. The number of people on medication now for anxiety in my country is staggering. It goes up every single year. A lot of them are followers of Jesus. Think that line we read a few minutes ago. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I to you. My peace. Have any of you ever read that and thought, man, that sounds really cool. That would make a great like, picture frame on grandma's wall, but I can't relate to it. I don't have that peace. I'm racked by anxiety. I'm stressed out. I'm go, go, go. I'm in a hurry all the time. Where is your peace, Jesus? You said, my peace I leave with you. I don't feel that peace. Now, maybe you do. Maybe you live in Cape Town. You're like, oh, I feel the peace. All right, well, I I live in Portland. I don't always feel the peace. A lot of followers of Jesus read that and think, really? Man, I don't feel that at all. So how do you get peace from Jesus? Most people think, well, you just get a download from heaven. And there's something to that because peace is the fruit of the Spirit. So a lot of people pray for peace. And that's not a bad thing to do. That's great. I pray for peace. But also remember that, how do you get the peace? By following Jesus. What does that mean? By living like Jesus. Jesus was not stressed out. Jesus was not racked by anxiety. And guess what? That wasn't just because he had a direct line of communication to God. It was because his whole lifestyle was set up for the peace of God. It was set up around abiding. Jesus, in relationship with the Father all the time, would get up early, would just be with the Father, would rest. And then he had this whole lifestyle. Jesus would practice Sabbath once a week, just a whole day for rest and worship. He would regularly get away to a solitary place just to pray, even as an extrovert, just to go and be with God. He would eat a meal with friends. Jesus loved to do that. He would get up early sometimes and go to pray and sometimes stay up all night. But then it, more than one story, you read about Jesus sleeping in. The disciples have to wake. Hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah. It's 10 a.m. It's time to get up. Oh, well, I'm just practicing the spiritual discipline of sleeping in, you know? He was never in a rush, never in a hurry, even in a full life. And guess what? His whole life was marked by peace. Why is it that we think we who are not Jesus can go breakneck speed through life go crazy be distracted on our phone all the time in traffic rushing around and think that we're going to have the peace of Jesus when we live absolutely nothing like Jesus at all Here's the thing you have to realize about Jesus is that he was the example not only of what it means to be God but also of what it means to be human Part of Jesus' identity and calling was to show the world what God is like You look at you want to know what God is like look at Jesus But another part of his identity and calling was to show the world what a really good human being is like. When you look at Jesus, you see, oh, that's how we do it. That's a whole other way to be human. Oh, look at Jesus' relationship to money. Oh, 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 that's, well, that's not how I do it. That's how you do it. Look at Jesus' relationship to living in community. Oh, wow, he's not an individualist. Oh, he's, oh, uh, oh, that's how you do it. Oh, look at Jesus' relationship to Sabbath, to worship, to time, to you fill in the blank. Oh, that's how you do it. That's what all those stories in the middle between Jesus' birth and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are about. A lot of people don't know what to do with those stories. If you know anything about the church creeds, the earliest church creeds all skip right from Jesus' virgin birth to his death on the cross. It's a lot of people that have said, whoa, 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 Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't do that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them skip the virgin birth. Two of them don't. But Then they have this whole bit in between about Jesus' life and his lifestyle. Story after story after story. Just stories about Jesus and how he was living with disciples in community. Teachings about how to be human. There's more going on with Jesus than just death, burial, and resurrection. That's the climax. Absolutely. But there's a beautiful crescendo. That bit in the middle... One of the main things it's doing, not the thing, one of the main things it's doing is it's Jesus saying, this is how to be a really good human being. This is how you do it. And so if you're an apprentice of Jesus, man, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John like it's the Bible or something (laughs) all the time. You soak and immerse your mind, your imagination in that, and you say, all right, how do I copy Jesus of Nazareth? How do I emulate him? How do I mimic him? Not to earn God's favor. You already have God's favor because you want that kind of a life because you, like me, find Jesus of Nazareth more than compelling. But there's a lifestyle. And if you can tap into that lifestyle, then the byproduct is an incredible way of life. And here's the thing you have to understand. The best part about following Jesus is Jesus so the more that you can organize your life around life with Jesus, not only will you be transformed into the kind of person who's marked by love and joy and peace, but you will experience what Jesus called the full in relationship to him. Now, just to wrap up, if all of this sounds overwhelming, please don't freak out. Calm down. I live in another country. I doubt I'll ever be back. So it's okay. Mark will be back next week. Maybe just two ideas for those of you that want to translate this. It's a bit overwhelming. Well, just, I think, long-term and short-term. Long-term, I would say, slow down and simplify your life around what really matters one at a time. Cut out all the extra, unnecessary activities that make up your week and slowly but surely add in the practices of Jesus or the spiritual disciplines. If you're brand new to this, just start with one. Start with silence and solitude, 10 minutes a day or... An hour or two a week, just start with one, start to create space for relationship with God. Short term, I would just say, you know, every single day, set aside a little time for silence and solitude. Here's a great, easy exercise I do that all of you can do. How many of you have 10 minutes extra a day? 10 or 15 minutes? Come on, you all have 10 or 15 minutes a day, unless if you have a young child, and then you don't have any minutes a day. Um, And if you don't have 10 or 15 minutes a day, then you need therapy and help and to change how you live, in all due respect. Here's an easy exercise that I do every single morning. I did it this morning, and I love it. Every morning I get up, and I'm from Portland. We, we believe that we have the best coffee in the world. It's true. And um, so I start my morning with the ancient Christian practice of really good coffee. <laughs> and then um, before I even read my Bible, before I pray, I just be with Jesus. I just sit there 10 or 15 minutes. And I have this little quiet place I go to. My phone's not there. My computer's not there. It's quiet. It's first thing in the morning. And I just sit. And I breathe a little bit. Kind of focus on my breathing a little bit. Just to tune in my mind. And I, I just be. Sometimes I'll, you know, I'll quote a psalm to myself that I put to memory. Sometimes I'll do a little listening prayer. God, good morning. Is there anything you have to say to me? Sometimes I'll get something off my chest. A lot of the time, I'll just just be. I'm a dad. I have three children. There are times when we're in dialogue, or we play chess, or we go out in activity, or we play soccer, or we watch Star Wars, or we do something. And there are other times when we're just shoulder to shoulder, just driving in the car, just on a walk, just together. Those are some of the best times. Same is true with God. Sometimes I encounter God, and it's like, oh, my gosh, God is speaking to me. Other times I'm so distracted and so just, like, upset about this, that, or the other, or mad at somebody at work, or this, or upset with my kid, or whatever, that really all that happens is the mental noise and clutter and chaos starts to kind of come down maybe to zero, and that's about it. Then I have to go. Most of the time I just feel peace. There's a great... TV interview where Dan Rather, years ago, interviewed Mother Teresa on television, and he asked her, "Um, when you pray, what do you say to God? And Mother Teresa said, I don't say anything, I listen. Dan Rather said, oh, wow, that's kind of freaky, okay, I didn't say that, but a bit taken aback, and he said, okay, well, when you pray to God, what does he say to you? And Mother Teresa said, he doesn't say anything, he listens, he listens. And then there's an awkward silence, and he didn't know what to say. And then she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Now, obviously, that's, that's overplayed. I'm not saying don't pray to God. But there's something beautiful in that kind of a depth of relationship where you're just with Jesus. There's, we live in a noisy, busy world that does violence to the soul. I, honest to God, all Sarcasm inside, I love your country. All the pain is here, and I feel it in my bones when I'm here. But man, beautiful country, beautiful people, beautiful cultures. One of the things I really pick up when I hear it is, so go, 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 go. It's a bit surface level. And it's not to critique you. It's just to say, man, there's there's something. If you slow down, you step out of the hurry and the noise and the traffic and the busyness and the alpha male and the this, that, and you just like, there is something under the surface there. There's life with God that's waiting for you. So if nothing else, I don't know if I'll ever see you again until the resurrection of Jesus. We'll have a coffee then. I'll be a little bit less introverted. and We can hang out for an afternoon. <laughs> In the meantime, really all my hope as just a guest. My hope is that out of this week, you start to practice the presence of God maybe you cut a couple of things out of your life. You add in a couple of spiritual disciplines, not to earn God's favor, not because you're legalistic or you're religious, but because you want to be with Jesus because that's where the money's at. And in doing so, you start to experience life with Jesus. And the next thing you know, you start to be transformed. That's pretty good. It's a joy to be with you. God bless you guys.